save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. I'm Ellie Weiss. Today, we're going to break down some of what happened at CITES COP18 this past August in Geneva. And I'm talking with my guest, award-winning journalist John Platt, editor of The Revelator, part of the Center for Biodiversity. John has been an environmental journalist for nearly 15 years, with his incisive reporting covering critical issues in today's world of short news cycles and clickbait articles. Independent and thoughtful, slow journalism has never been more important. For today, we must connect the dots between critical issues in politics, conservation, history, art, and science to keep these issues in the forefront of the public eye. John's column, Extinction Countdown, has covered news about science about more than 1,000 species around the world and is now part of the Revelator. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Glad to be joining you today. It's so good to be talking to you. I've been, uh, you know, kind of dying to talk with somebody who's as familiar <laughs> with what happens and going on at CITES. As you know, we had a team there, and we've been putting out um, news and videos about what's been going on there. But we haven't really yet had an episode for our audience to break down what happened there. So we do have some important topics to go through today. As this recent CITES decisions are and will affect so many endangered species. Lots to cover. So let's start with the big picture. Then we'll dive into some specific issues of main concern about vanishing megafauna. And by the end of our conversation today, we can come back and ask again, do we need something more than CITES to protect species and rein in both legal and illegal trade in endangered flora and fauna. So let's start with the big picture. Is CITES good enough or do we need something on top of it? Well, the tough answer to that question is yes to both. I I think that it does great. uh, CITES does a great job for what it is and what it can accomplish. But there's probably opportunities to keep broadening it and, and maybe add something on top of it. Um, you know, I, I've always said that by CITES, by definition, is, is an organization about regulating trade. To a degree, that makes it, by definition, pro-trade. It is more it is more encouraged to keep the trade of, of, uh, of various species going. In fact, most of the countries that go to it are, are looking for the benefit of trade. Um, so that's great. You know, it, countries want to be able to use their natural resources. But by placing, you can place restrictions on it, and that does a lot of great conservation value. But it doesn't do a huge amount to address the illegal wildlife trafficking. And I think that we need to take further steps to, to add a, a, more attention worldwide to wildlife crime. In fact, John Scanlon, who used to be a, uh, the head of CITES, posted a, an, an essay a couple months back on LinkedIn you know, proposing a whole separate convention just like with CITES tackles international trade, legal trade, he proposes a second one to tackle international wildlife trade. 
I recall I recall that letter and posted it. Yes. Yeah. So it so, it, it brought up yeah. some important points, and you know maybe we should just take a little moment here, as you said, what CITES is. Let's just do a real brief statement what CITES is. We've covered it many times, but let's refresh. You said it's a trade organization, so therefore it is pro-trade. It is not a law enforcement agency. Yeah. And it only covers international trade, not domestic trade. Yet at this COP, they sort of crossed some some lines here, especially with elephants and, you know, split listings um, and then extinct species that are now going for trade, we're going to touch on. And yeah. then um, the, the rhino horn. And so they stopped the ivory trade, but we still sell elephants. Mm-hmm. So, and they, they took out a lot of language referring to poaching, putting that burden of poaching on domestic countries. Let's, let's talk about that a little and how confusing that gets. Yeah, but by regulating international trade, that means when a product, and I, I kind of hate to boil an animal down to a product. Let's but there, use the word resource. But a yeah, resource. It, yeah, it does look at it yeah. as a product, though, and that's yeah. part of the problem. When it crosses an international boundary, when it travels travels from the U.S. to Canada, for example, um, that is therefore regulated, and that's kind of normal. Anytime something enters a country, it should be regulated in one way, shape, or form. Whether it's a a tariff or or a or or a complete ban on something entering, but let's say something is a. Uh, uh, species is in the United States. There's 50 United, you know, 50 states in here, and each one of those, uh, maybe something can travel from New York to California without a problem. Uh, I, I think back to um, Venus flytraps, for example. Huge poaching problem for Venus flytraps, and and uh, that's complicated by the fact that they're so easy to grow in captivity. Um, so it, it's kind of it becomes easy for things to move around from state to state. And that uh, kind of brings up the issue between wild and farmed yeah or grown or um I or can't raised think, right you know we've had the same problem with big cats in the united states they can depending on the, the individual state chances are they can get raised and then bred in captivity and then sold to another state as long as they don't travel well that there, there's that's some, another sticky the, the, one and yeah and, that's, and that's hunting. a sticky one there's loads of change on yeah, that yeah um, and hunting and all of that so that's yeah. we've, we've covered but a lot the, of that of captive farming in the US yeah. and captive farming in Africa but let's talk about but, but what happened let's with, take it let's take it to Africa you know you, we've got the bushmeat trade so okay an animal is, is caught and and, uh, and converted into meat in, in, in a country and it just travels to another uh, the local city okay so maybe that's not regulated by the convention on international trade and endangered species but you, you try to take that to another country again the u.s is a big importer of bushmeat then maybe you're crossing that international line so do we if, if something is protected on cites if we're saying that international trade is a problem why does that not cover carry all the way down to the national level uh, and that's because the convention has no legal authority to regulate that type of trade. Right. Thank you. So this is where it comes in with what John Scanlon had said. And I think it also came up at uh, 
COP 16 and 17 in the one in 2016 about these issues and it certainly happened with rhino horn and mm-hmm. they basically tabled the ivory discussion in 2016 but it came up again this year despite nobody wanting to talk about it <laughs> so let's let's just touch upon the ivory and sure and a little bit we won't get into live elephant trade that is a whole other very sticky wicket right now with what's going on in Zimbabwe. And uh, we'll be talking with Adam Cruz about that. So let's set that aside for a moment and just talk about what did happen, the big wins for Elephant, and then this yeah. trouble with split listing. Right. Uh, well, the split listing has been around for a long time, and certain elephant, or certain elephant nations were allowed to engage in a certain amount of activity, certain amount of trade. So Botswana, Namibia, and Zimbabwe wanted legal trade from ivory in their countries, um, as did South Africa. And and, uh, and meanwhile, a lot of other countries were proposing, no, we want to, we want to uh, lock that down, um, move everything to, to Appendix 1, which would end the split listing and restrict international trade. And basically put all African nations on the same level playing field. Um, so they'd all be operating under the same rules. And that passed. Which is a big win. Yeah, it's a huge win. I think anytime you have a species that is wide-ranging as, as elephants and, is, and really affecting multiple species, where you have one set of rules, it becomes an awful lot easier to enforce them. Right, and it allows the African nations who are the members to create standing and strong legislation to deal with it through the justice system and the paper trail. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this, that's, that's important for everything from, from national law all the way down to, to customs officials and, and judges. And then it, of course, has to bring up the point of corruption. So South Africa... And its different, um, its different uh, counties, sort of, so to speak. It's not all one system, and they don't. It's not modernized, and it's not equally reported. So a lot slips through the cracks. So this kind of brings us to the SADC nations, the Southern African Development. Consortium? Um, what does the C stand for, SADC? That's um, a good question. Uh, I, re- I know it somewhere, but I'll just call it consortium C- for C- the moment. Community. Community, community. okay. Southern African Development Community. Which is South Africa, Swaziland, East Swatini, which used to be Swaziland, uh, Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Zambia. And then Tanzania is kind of an outlier in there, as they also hunt elephant there. So... There was a point with all this um, new ruling on ivory and the sale of live elephants that the SADC nations were going to pull out of CITES. In fact, uh, Zimbabwe was the first to submit an Article 18, um, and then they had 90 days to deal with it, and that's where these Zimbabwe elephants come in. But as I said, we're going to kind of set that aside. So <laughs> let's let's talk about that a little bit. and. What could possibly happen um, if the SADC nations decided to pull out and the ramifications to the countries they want to sell to or the buyers 
and the ramifications to them if they pulled out of CITES? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's really big and wild. I mean, there are 183 nations that are uh, signatories to CITES, which is basically every nation. Uh, if we suddenly get seven pull out over the issue of elephants, or or maybe really the ultimate issue is self control and self determination, um, then does that weaken the entire process? Does that weaken the enti- you know the the protection for all animals around the globe? And what what happens? Does that mean that these nations can then import and export amongst themselves? Does it change how? Uh, they can export things to other countries? Does it change what they can import? Or does it just create huge levels of gray zones and additional corruption? I think the latter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I, I think it opens up and certainly um, destroys the integrity of what CITES has accomplished. But it brings up a point that perhaps CITES needs to be modernized and that's part of the conversation that's been going on. And to take in further consideration of the IPBS report and the IPCC reports of total biodiversity loss, climate mm-hmm. change, and you know that the statements that we have 12 years to turn the way we deal on Earth around. Well, it's true. I mean, CITES is, is a slow-moving beast. Um, and there are things that can be streamlined in a lot of different ways. Um, we, we are under tight deadlines for a lot of species. There was, um, and, and, you know, when, when something is, is declared endangered, it takes an awful long time for protection under, to, to actually occur under CITES. There's a, there was a study earlier this year that found, that once the IUCN puts a species on its red list and says, hey, it's endangered, it's threatened, it takes another 10 years on average for that species to then receive protection under CITES. And some species take multiple decades. Um, Now, these are different organizations. They don't have to follow one another. But there's definitely a case to be made for faster action. Definitely, since a lot of species don't have 10 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. let's, take, let's take the case of the vaquita. Yeah. That's about as bad as it can get. Right now, the counts, the, the best information we have is there's somewhere between 6 and 19. And, uh, and that, I, I've been watching the species decline bit by bit for a decade, and I, they do not have another decade. I'd be, lucky, I'd be surprised if they have another year, although I keep saying that year and year. And we keep finding additional ones alive. The most recent one, the one was spotted October 17th, but it was also surrounded by about 70 boats using illegal gill nets, which are the main reason that it was endangered in the first place. Well, let's break this down a little bit. So the vaquita species itself has full protection under CITES. That means when they say no quota, that means Mm -hmm. no animals can be traded. Unlike people thinking no quota, oh, that means anything. There's no quota. Um, So when they say no quota, that means nothing can be traded. So they can't give any further protections to, to the vaquita. What they can do and what they did do was put pressure on Mexico to clean up its act and, um, do something about the illegal fishing gillnets 
in the waters where the vaquita are. Let's talk about yeah. that a little because you're, you're yeah. kind of an expert on this. Yeah, and we've covered this quite a bit at The Revelator, and you can read the articles at therevelator.org. Uh, and it's, you bring up an interesting point is that, you know, there's no trade allowed in the vaquita, and there never has been any trade in the vaquita, especially, specifically. This is a small porpoise. There's no commercial value in it. But the people uh, who are damaging this species and killing it off, first they were fishing for shrimp, and then more recently they've been using these gill nets to catch another critically endangered species called the totowaba. Uh, which is the the swim bladders for which are then sold in China is for for very high amounts of money. Um, so it's an interesting case. You're you're not allowed to trade the vaquita, but it's not being traded in the first place. But meanwhile, they haven't done enough to protect it, and they haven't done enough to protect Totowaba at the same point, the same, at the same time, that a lot of organizations and, and activists were proposing uh, that Mexico be sanctioned for not doing enough to protect the vaquita. And these sanctions would have, uh, if they had passed, would have placed a lot of restrictions on Mexico. It would have prevented, you know, there's, Mexico has a lot of species on Appendix 2, which, under which uh, trade is regulated in species. And uh, a, a, a sanctions could have prevented those species from being traded at all, which would have been a very, a very big uh, economic hit for Mexico. But CITES ended up taking out one critical piece of language when they finally passed the proposal of the vaquita. Um, they removed the language that said they would put sanctions on Mexico and not allow it to trade anything else. Yeah. But even though they took that out, which, you know, I can understand, Mexico made a very uh, strong argument that they'd done a lot over the past 10 years to, to try. I think you can contest that argument if you really want to. Well, there's um, only seven left, you said? There's, there's, so it's not enough. It was six. It's def- they definitely haven't done enough. Um, and and the But the threat of sanctions still exists. I think the threat is, well, on one hand, it did kick Mexico into action. They've sent a lot more troops into the Gulf of, of California, uh, supposedly to rein in this gillnet problem. But at the same time, even before the CITES meeting, Mexico had stopped. They, the, Over the past few years, they've been making payments to fishermen to keep them off the water, basically an incentive to stop them from fishing. Those payments have stopped appearing. So even though Mexico now, as a result of the CITES meeting, has is, is, uh, put more put more f- troops on the ground or the water as the case may be, and agreed to take further steps to try to minimize the trade in Totowaba. They've also completely failed their existing promises to their own people, and that was, as far as I can tell, was not discussed at CITES, and and um, and it's gonna it's it's a hell of a contradiction uh, for the promises they've made. Yeah, and it once again brings it back to that sticky wicket of international trade versus national regulations. Yeah. So since it's illegal to trade in Vaquita and Totoaba is protected, there's not enough being done. And once again, it brings up this point, does CITES need more to help it be more effective, a sister-brother organization that is more focused on law enforcement. 
I would I would 100% argue that yes, that it does. But of course, the question is, where does that come from? Does it come then from the United Nations in a broader sense? Does it come from where there? I, I don't see where that could come from right now. We need something better, something that can actually take these international regulations down to the to the micro level, to the one mile level, and, and give people. Uh, individually and governments, the, the tools they need to stop this trade in the first place. That's right. And once again, it brings it down to, you know, time, climate change, everything. How are we going to enforce the laws we already have? So at this moment, I think it's a good time to step away for a break. So folks, stick with us. We've got a lot more to, to discuss, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. I'm Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, John Platt, um, author of uh, Extinction Countdown and editor of The Revelator of Center for Biodiversity. So we've been talking about what happened at CITES COP18, which was 
put together rather hurriedly. It was supposed to be in May in Sri Lanka. There was the Easter bombing, so it got delayed. And then it was rather hastily put together to be held in Geneva, according to Secretariat rules, um, and didn't have quite all the... Um, oh, uh, uh, um, what the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, all the preparedness and systems in place to hold such a critical meeting. There were 57 proposals on the table, and um, it was day and night going on. So another point that came up in CITES was, of course, rhino horn trade. And this once again goes back to the SADC countries um, who farm rhino. They're, mm-hmm. they're not farmed like tiger farms. They're not kept in cages or lions, it's strictly for bones and skin and medicinal, but the rhino horn is used for medicinal, and um, there were some very good arguments pro-rhino horn trade. They make a lot of sense, Um, yet it's the moral and ethical point that we have to kind of talk about. We need to think about wild rhino and the effects of sales of farmed rhino on the wild rhino, should it go through. As of 2016, it's legal to sell rhino horn domestically within South Africa. It's not legal to trade it internationally. However, rhino are still being poached, whether they're farmed or wild, and they're not surviving. It's not working. So let's, I'd like to hear your thoughts. All my thoughts are so complex on this issue. I know, mine are too. We've got time, John. Well, you know, the, the, the argument can be made that one of the reasons rhinos do so have, have done well in general in South Africa is that they're, most of them are under private ownership. Uh, and people have put a lot of resources into saving them. This is their argument. So they should be able to get some cash back for their Successful efforts. conservation. Yeah. Now, where I look at it, I look at it from the example of other species. Um once once a rhino horn is cut off, how do you know it came from a farmed versus wild animal? It's very hard. You, okay, you, maybe you can attach some paperwork to it, but there's no way to examine it and say this came from a wild animal, this came from a, a, a uh, farmed animal. You can't even really tell what species it came from. What about Sam Wasser's DNA testing on ivory? Would that translate to rhino horn? Well, in theory it would, but is that a tool that can be readily made available to right. customs officials on a, on a on an ad hoc basis and, and you know, is, is stuff's being in, and, and what happens then? You know, it goes through a test once, does it need to go through a test through every port? Right. Um, and and of course even you go back to traditional Asian medicine, the value is placed on wild products, which are considered more potent and more powerful. So if you're if you're saying that any trade in, in rhino horn is okay, or at least trade in, in you know, if you're saying that this specific since circumstance of, of farm-raised rhino horn is okay, does that create then further incentive to say, well, we want something even better? We want wild horn, and that causes more poaching in the wild. So. I th- I think based on experiences with other animals, tigers um, f- among them, that this might not work. Well, there's the argument, and we talked to one gentleman at CITES, and um, his 
acreage. He has two 8,000-acre ranches in South Africa, and they're completely wild landscapes. Mm-hmm. They, they don't have predators because that would harm both the rangers and the rhino. And the, rhino, the male rhino are kept separately because they do do damage to other rhino. And he goes in and dehorns once every couple years. So he's got caches, um, you know, stockpiles of rhino horn along with folks like John Hume. Mm-hmm. Um, so Derek is different than John Hume in that Derek loves rhino. His landscape is completely wild. Um, the rhino are free roaming, so to speak. They choose to mate with who they want to mate with. So mm-hmm. technically, you could call them wild, sure. even though they're private, as opposed to John Hume, who is more in it for banking on trade in rhino horn to keep his rhino alive. He's now divesting of his rhino because he's. You get the feeling he's not so much in it for survival of the species, he's in it for the trade, and his one-off auction after CITES allowed the the domestic trade failed. So, let's talk about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. Would you call that an effort in rhino horn trade that failed, or would you call it a one-off experiment that didn't cover enough ground, so to speak. I call it an effort that failed. Um, you know, I, I don't track the individuals as much. Uh, John Hume, obviously, is, is a bit of a different case. He's been in the press quite a bit. Um, but, you know, that was a domestic trade. And, and again, you know, rhinos are doing relatively okay in South Africa. Um, the poaching is still on the up is still a, a, a major dramatic problem for them. Otherwise, that uh, rancher you mentioned wouldn't still be de- dehorning his rhinos. Um, the question is, how much demand really is there within South Africa or anywhere else? And what is that demand for? I mean, a lot of the demand um, is for medicinal purposes, which have not shown to be uh, accurate scientifically. Right. So, uh, so, do, so do you think it's for the Asian population within Africa? That's a good question. It very well could be. Because, it, or is it a way for the Asian population within Africa to feed the illegal trans, transfer, transition of illegal horn to Asia? Well, we've seen that with uh, with rhino. Uh, or with, I'm sorry, with elephant uh, ivory as well. You know, people living in Africa uh, and commuting back and forth to their home countries, whether they're ending their their time uh, working or they're just uh, going home from vacation or whatever. That's a it's a great way to smuggle things back. And then there was that one seizure of dehorned rhino horn that was caught by customs, and it was traced back to John Hume. So. It's definitely a sticky wicket because CITES CITES didn't really cover this one, and they didn't cover it again this year. As as far as I'm aware, they basically said no trade in horn, despite Mm -hmm. the two proponents that advocated for trade. It kind of fell off the table and out of the limelight. Yeah. And I go back to the Endangered Species Act in the United States. You know, the, the law says the the rules have to be made for the benefit of the species, not based on economics. And um, 
yeah, okay, maybe some people could benefit from rhino horn sales, but does that benefit the species? Uh, you could say that the money would be funneled back into conservation, but... Um, is it? Yeah, is it? So that's a good point, and it brings me, since you brought up economics, and you know, within illegal markets, we talked with Alejandro Nadal, and we spoke with him again at this CITES, that... Um, the, eco- the ec- economics of illegal markets, uh, CITES is not taking that into consideration because illegal markets are not single product outlets. They're not just selling rhino horn and ivory. They're selling right. skins, they're selling cigarettes, they're selling alcohol, they're selling drugs, they're selling guns. So it's, it's no one thing and therefore it's not easily tracked as it right. transits from country to country, usually in huge shipping containers. Yeah, we've seen cases of, of the same containers containing tusks and guns or, or pangolins and, and drugs. And human trafficking goes along these same trade tr- tr- routes as well. So this is a slavery issue to, in addition. And uh, that's, again, why you know sometimes it's not the issue of should we protect the pangolin or not. It's are we protecting people by, not, by taking down these international cartels and these trade routes. And that applies to rhino horn as well, you know, and it's a pro-trade argument. Rhino and people are dying side by side. And all of our efforts and the money we are pouring into anti-poaching and the militarization of it and the guns and the weapons that are needed to do that with the new addition of many organizations doing community buy-in, that the community becomes the protectors, such as the Akashinga uh, women under International Anti-Poaching Foundation with Damian Mander. And that, that works, but it still is putting a price on elephant and rhino as a commodity. And what do you think about this point when so many of the African nations and their arguments for trade, especially in the SADC countries, because their point is they have conservation success. They have so many elephants that they have, quote unquote, surplus. They don't have the environment to feed them and it's creating conflict. So what happens when we put the burden of economic development on the backs of wildlife. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you, you talk about those elephants, and one of the reasons they're they're crammed. One of the reasons they are becoming surplus animals is because they don't have the ability to, to access their native or their natural migration paths. And you know, do elephants belong to one country? The argument could be very well made, and it has been made, that they're actually belong to the continent. And they should be able to move, and often do move, between national borders still. Um, Transnational parks. Yeah. Um, Or even outside of parks. You know, there's an awful lot of, you know, whether it's just within their natural, within native habitat. So, but it's such a a complex and tough issue. Um, being Being a ranger... Being an environmental defender is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. We're getting hundreds of people killed every year. Um, as as the guards, as the rangers, uh, increase their weaponization, their militarization, the criminals do the same thing. And which which is in response to which? Um, you and know, often it, the criminals are are more well outfitted than yeah. the local law enforcement. 
And is that a chicken and the egg situation? Which which had the higher level of armament of arms first? Um, probably the criminals. But are they even going further now because because they're making so much money and because they know that they they'd rather get uh, they'd rather fight the, the best they can versus a, a now what's now a well armed opponent. Um, it's also it, another sticky wicket that we highlight in the news all these successes, which mm-hmm. does give the cartels, the criminals, a heads up of how to fight it. So when when we say in the press, hey, this uh, this um, poachers were killed here, or uh, this this shipment was seized here, and it has such and such dollar value, that information makes its way back to the cartels, and they can work that, that say, okay, well now we know what didn't work, we can figure out a better way of working. Is that your your argument there? Sort of, and then a reason <laughs> that the value keeps increasing. Of, yeah. of our wildlife resources as a commodity, a product, a unitization, as mm-hmm. opposed to a driver of biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. The argument can be very well be made that we should not be placing dollar value on things anywhere. I, I always hate it when people say, you know, the pang- a giant pangolin seizure you know, worth $8 million. Like, well, what's real- is that really what it's worth? Right. Or is it worth the the health of the ecosystem? So it's it's a shift in how we have to report this news, mm-hmm. and that's what Revelator and Extinction Countdown does, and why we're talking today because this is a different perspective that puts the resources that we all depend upon, Earth and its wild inhabitants, that perform echo functions beyond our needs. We always look at it in terms of human value and right. don't often look at don't look at it enough in terms of the value to survival of life on Earth as we know it. Right. I mean you can you can place an ecosystem service argument on just about anything. But really then the in the grand scheme of things, you know, there's also a moral argument as well. Um, do, these creatures have a right to exist. These plants have a right to exist. A lot of them evolved in little microhabitats that might be the size of a city block or smaller. Um, that makes them very vulnerable to disruption or just being wiped out completely. Um, that's something special in the world that arose. And we need to see the value of something as as a unique uh, species, as, as something what to be to be celebrated, just the fact that it exists. Right. We ran a piece on the Revelator. Uh, just the other day uh, by a, a parasitologist named Mackenzie Kwok who wrote about a flea in Scotland. A flea. Who cares about a flea? Well, this is a darn interesting species and it's it lives in like a third of a mile and nowhere else. It's one of the few uniquely British species. Um, and it's got neat little plates that look like armor. Um, it's, and it's, as it's a parasite, sure, it's a flea, but it doesn't do any real harm. Most parasites don't. Um, so that's because their system is in balance. Right. Exactly. And, and when, and, and we, by, by continue by, by putting a, an economic value on things, by putting a, a human value on things, that's not exactly the, the balance that came up in nature. And it also puts, um, this burden of economic benefit and um, ecosystem services on, on 
sort of like the 1% who can afford to purchase it versus the communities who live with it. It goes back to what we said earlier. Does the sale of these and trade of these species actually trickle down to those who are in conflict or live with it? Are they benefiting? Yeah. And there's there's just a big dust-up in Science Magazine um, this week, um, in late October, where a, a month or so back, someone published a letter saying uh, trophy hunting is really good for conservation, and if you ban trophy hunting, you're going to cause all these problems. Well, the, all, the Science published a whole bunch of reactions to it, and among, the, among them is the fact that a lot of the money doesn't make its way back to the, to the on-the-ground people that, that live near these species. And that could either be due to corruption, mm-hmm. mismanagement, or not enough to go around to cover it. There's a lot of money going into NGOs to protect things. There's a lot of money being had in trading, but what we're not getting is um, the breakdown of how this affects reality. And yeah. Yeah. So I think this is a good point to step away for break again, because once again, we still have a lot to cover. So folks, stick with us and John and I will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Our Wild World. My fascinating guest, John Platt, from uh, editor of The Revelator and uh, Extinction Countdown. So we've been talking about what happened, some of what happened at CITES in August. And so much happened, it's hard to cover in, you know, a one episode. So It's impossible to cover it all in one It episode. is. I mean, it took two weeks to, to have the conference and another th- month to get all the proposals listed with the outcomes, and they're still coming through. And meanwhile, reality is still going on. Species are still being poached. Illegal trade is still going on. And a whole lot of questions remain unanswered. So let's, before we get deeply into that again, which is full circle, let's talk about some of the other um, wins at CITE, and are they truly wins. So Uh there's the first one, the precedent of listing an extinct species for trade, mammoth ivory. This is so interesting. There was a proposal to say, let's ban the sale of mammoth ivory, mammoth, which, you know, is a fossil, uh, essentially being uh, coming up out of the permafrost. It's an extinct species. So you can't kill off any more of them. Um, But the argument was that um, a lot of elephant ivory is being disguised as mammoth ivory. And it's not exactly all that easy for the untrained eye to tell the difference. There are some, some differences. Mammoth is, I believe, a little bit harder, a little bit curvier, um, a little bit dirtier. Um, and it's but, slightly different molecularly, isn't it? Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, you could – but that's why I said to a the detail, untrained eye. right. Yeah. Um, so uh, – this, this proposal actually came out of Israel, if I remember correctly, and um, it, it got tabled, but they're going to study the issue and come back. And I think it raises some really interesting issues. You know, should we, should we be trafficking in, um, in mammoth ivory or bones? Should we be trafficking in, in Tyrannosaurus rex skeletons? Hmm. Um, you know, these things are, in a lot of ways, the national heritage just like the, the, the living biodiversity of the countries in which they're found. Um, and and same as, uh, as, as the bones of, of dead people that have been traded by museums for centuries or the archaeological uh, piece, you know, huh. pottery or anything else. Huh. I think in some ways there are parallels. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when you start opening it up and trying to level the playing field and apply it to a variety of situations, which is what I love to do. It's like, okay, if this works here, will it, how does it work in the, you know, zooming out and looking down? So you're absolutely right. It brings up so many questions that CITES can't answer. Yeah. And it also deals with climate change because the permafrost is melting. So we're seeing more of the harvesting of mammoth ivory through industrialized processes of huge washing away of the the permafrost and the cliffs where this ivory is being, this mammoth ivory is being found and the the environmental destruction it's doing once again for money. And then there's a whole 
bizarre other thing. This isn't really being talked about in, in the mammoth trade, but I think it's worth bringing up. There is the effort to bring the mammoth back to life, right. the, de- was... the, the de-extinction process. Right. What's the law for a mammoth that's suddenly walking back again on the earth? You know, can, can you trade it? Can you sell it? Can you import it from country to country? These are questions that need to be addressed legally on the international level before we, before we try to bring something back to life, and I have doubts about the, the actual veracity of that technology. Um, and, and then, you know, again, what does that have, what does that, what does that have to do with the elephant ivory then, too? Right. And interestingly enough, folks, that you can read about this project, the Pleistocene Project, that's going on in Siberia, and it's basically an effort to bring back the large grasslands, which are huge carbon sinks. Most of the megafauna on our planet eats are vegetarians and eat grass rather than forests. And the plains, uh, the Great Plains, the Serengeti Plains, the Siberian grasslands are all critical habitat and carbon sinks. And it was critical habitat for the mammoth. And what they're trying to do is bring back a version of the mammoth and um, the... Uh, musk ox and the buffalo to create huge swaths of grasslands. It's been going on for a couple of decades now, but the questions that haven't been answered are what we just addressed. What is the point of bringing it back beyond this environmental need and how will it be addressed once these animals are brought back? It just brings up another huge sticky wicket. We've addressed a lot of sticky wickets today. I know, and and they're and they're still sticky, and yeah. uh, but that's what's important and wh- why we're having this conversation because not everybody knows what CITES is. You say CITES and they go what, and <laughs> and you say it out the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna, and they go meh, and it's like, do you understand what that means? So a, a lot of time gets spent trying to just explain. Why CITES is needed. And this kind of goes back to what we talked about before. CITES Mm -hmm. is unique. It's a treaty. We would not be able to create, and you said this earlier, the sister organization today as a treaty that has voluntary memberships. I don't think we could do the same thing as we did with CITES. So in some ways, it's absolutely fascinating that CITES continues. Yeah. There aren't many parallels in the world now, are there? No, there aren't. And people, you know, anti-CITES folks just say, stop the trade. And it's like, everything is traded. Everything is traded. Can you imagine what would happen if we didn't have CITES? Yeah, it'd be a free-for-all. Exactly. And I, and I, I say this to my anti-CITES listeners out there. As much as CITES has faults and needs modernization and some better functionality. If we didn't have it, we would be in a whole lot worse shape than we are now. So some other good news that happened was giraffes. Yeah. Um, This was the first time that giraffes have been protected under CITES. They were placed under uh, Appendix 2, which regulates trade to sustainable populations and you know this this giraffes are they don't they've they've just started to really get the press and the attention um they're so charismatic and everyone thinks about them all the time they see them in zoos they think giraffes are plentiful but they're really not their populations have fallen by 
40% over the past couple decades. They're rarer than elephants. And there are uh, there's a deep need to protect them. There's also some unresolved questions that, that uh, need to be taken care of. But, but this is a good first step. I think it was the Revelator or even you in Extinction Countdown that um, a couple of years ago, the headlines started coming up, giraffes, the silent extinction. I think I was one of the first to bring the attention to it. In I my, believe in you were too. For, yeah, for articles for Scientific American. And um, and I've continued on with the most the most pressing thing right now. I mean, now that we've got some controls, and that'll protect some of the most dangerous, uh, most at-risk populations. The next step is to decide scientifically and internationally uh, come to a concordance, the scientific evidence that giraffes are actually not one species. They're probably four. Um, and this has been published scientifically. The IUCN has not adopted it. Um, but if, if they really are multiple species, then they're much more, they're all of them are much more endangered than we even think of when we address giraffes as one species all the same. So that's going to be the next step. And I think that that will be that'll be uh, contentious. Some people are. I've I've had this discussion with people. They argue, well, you know what? First, we just need to protect giraffes. Let's just worry about that first because that's really important. Um, but so all species were uplisted to Appendix Two. Yeah, which all, has quotas on trade and requires mm-hmm. a paper trail. Exactly. But I think that eventually, if we're going to be looking at some of these things, some of these populations will definitely, or if not, if they're especially if they're uh, quantified as individual species will definitely end up on Appendix 1. So in the how, how will we go about that? Um, where do you see that going? The scientific studies meet, reaching yeah. those who need to know that there are four species. Well, Therefore, I think, in more yeah. danger than we think. Part of it's the media. Uh, I guess that's my fault again. <laughs> uh, my responsibility. Um, but Both of ours. I, I, I think it's it just um, continuing to, to get more scientists on board with the with the evidence that these are genetically different uh, groups of animals, and then get up through the ranks of society, uh, get through the ranks of the IUCN, and then it'll be another ten to twenty four years before CITES adopts it. But um, I think that we we did make an important first step because there is an awful lot of trade in in in, uh, in giraffes, whether it's their tails or their their skins or the um, sinew, or, their tendons. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's time to address this, and it's it's probably past time to address this. But I think this is a really important victory. I do too, and we did a little video on it, and you can find it on the Our Wild World Facebook page, and we've done one on the elephant trade as well, and we have more coming up. So this brings me to a question, John, um, your opinion, your thoughts, the role of the media. How mm-hmm. do we get these critical issues at CITES into mainstream media, not just on the web where intelligent people go to find uh, <laughs> columns and papers and points like the Revelator or your blog or Extinction Countdown or Center for Biodiversity and the IPBS. How do we get this into the heads of Joe Schmo or whatever yeah. in the backwoods of Wyoming in deeply Republican territory to think not just about U.S. issues but you know, act a little more globally of the ramifications of what CITES decisions do 
on all of us in a way. Yeah, no small question there to no. end the show. <laughs> um, well, look, we're all connected. And and this is a problem we have with getting people to understand climate change and everything else. You know, if you're if you're sitting in your in your house and wherever it may be, you're you're looking at your neighborhood, but you don't see what's going on across the on the other side of the globe. You don't see the animals being slaughtered. You don't see the the rangers being killed at the same time. You don't see um, whatever else is going on. But you we don't need live to make, with it either. You don't live with it. But we need to make people, most people are carrying around a cell phone these days. And I spoke, I, had a, I did a panel discussion with Alex Deegan and a few other conservationists at the Society of Environmental Journalists Conference. And he held up the phone and said, look, this contains rare earth minerals. And he showed a video of an Amazonian rainforest or what used to be an Amazonian rainforest, which had been completely destroyed by artisanal mining to uh, to get gold and other minerals for cell phones. And this is just, you know, using, you know, digging. And now every tree was gone. It was just a mud pit. And The um, same is happening in um, in, uh, in, in all, gorilla, mountain gorilla habitat. Yeah, exactly. And getting, getting video, whether it's shot by conservationists or journalists out there to show people the effect, you know, we all have to draw the line somewhere. We all have to draw our, draw our own individual lines. But making people understand the impact, that they, they do have an impact. They, and this does affect them no matter where they live and who they are. This, this is their lives. Um, this is a global system. We are part of a one global ecosystem. And, um, and everything we do has a cost somewhere else. Or everything that has a cost somewhere else affects us some way or another. Right. Uh, um, and, you know, today we are more connected than ever before. We yeah. have a global encyclopedia at our fingertips. And what do we do with it? We watch silly cat videos, right? And we post um, anger and angst and vitriol when we mm-hmm. have this little amazing device at our fingertips that is clickable mm-hmm. to make a difference versus clickbait to bring out vitriol. Yeah. Well, I have a philosophy as a journalist in covering these really dangerous d- topics, um, really depressing topics. You got to show the bad stuff, but you got to show some successes at the same time. Absolutely. And and that's what that's what gets to the that's what gets through this eco apathy, this eco anxiety. Um, show people that someone somewhere is making progress, and they'll understand that they can too. Right. Well said. That's my my feeling exactly. Because folks like you and I that have to read our news feed and everything comes up, bad news, bad news, bad news, on top of the politics of currently living in the United States and the politics of the other autocrats and narcissists and dictators around the world, we've kind of taken a turn off the rails of where, let's say, we thought we were going in the 60s. We're not there, and Mm -hmm. we're very, very far away from it. And now this time crunch of 12 years to pull it together, which brings up, just a side note, the film Biggest Little Farm. Oh. And I don't know if you've seen it. I have not. You've got to watch it. It's fabulous. It's beautiful. And basically the end message is we can turn the soil system of the earth around in seven years. And it's fascinating. So it can be done. If we've got 12 years, in seven, if we all got on board 
we could turn it around and we would have a healthy skin of the earth to provide for a harmonious, not friendly, not Disney ecosystem where predators and prey are in balance. So everybody, you've got to watch The Biggest Little Farm, or the I think it's The Biggest Little Farm. Two folks decided to do it, and it's it's an absolutely fabulous film. So let's say we turn it around. Where do you think we'll be in seven years? <laughs> or even if we don't, where do you think we'll, we're going to be in two to five years? we got a couple minutes. I think we're going to continue to make some progress. Um, the, 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 the technological and political changes that are happening are happening faster and faster. So, unfortunately, the, the forces against positive change are very strong these days. Um, but I think we're going to start to see a lot of rapid change. Whether At the same time, we're going to see a lot of this, the damage that has been already caused start to play itself out. Uh, we're going to see we're going to see some species go extinct. We're going to see some coastlines erode. We're going to see a lot of people die from increased air pollution. Um, water wars. Water wars, exactly. Um, but we're going to start to see a lot of progress on a lot of fronts, and we need to be on the lookout for them. So, do you think these multiple crises and feedback loops of what's happening now is eventually going to be enough? to turn us toward a different way of living on Earth? Yes, question mark? Okay. (laughs) On that note, we're out of time, so maybe we need to talk a little bit more about some of the other issues and um, points that you brought up today. I love talking with you. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you for the invitation again. It was a, it was a real pleasure. You bet. And it, we're, it's just never enough time. So meanwhile, everybody go out and pay attention to our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.